0: This week, I was reviewing materials in my file from early in my ministry here, and I came across this prayer that runs in part, O Lord our God. I pray for your church at Tiburon and the new, more intensive relationship that Stephanie and I will share with her. Thank you for the ministries of Beth Singleton and Glenn Prescott. Thank you for bringing back from the point of death. Stephen Gardner, we pray you would send your Holy Spirit to lead, guide, equip, and love us throughout the time that stretches before us together. Lay your terror upon us and drive us to the place of prayer. May we be alert to where the evil one is at work, and may your gospel of grace and of redeeming love take root deeply in our lives. And may we be faithful in carrying it to others. There are several things that strike me in that prayer as I look back on the time that has stretched out between us. I'm reminded of with what joy. I look forward to the intimacy we would share together and we have. I'm reminded of the many goodnesses and graces of miracles of healing. And Steve Gardner is with us here this morning. I hasten to run on to say miracle is intentionally the exception. We are all going to die and God will take us, but he sends miracle, not necessarily to bless our individual lives, but as a gift to the church for ministry and for witness, and he has moved in that way in our midst. I'm somewhat embarrassed by the overwritten phrase, lay your terror upon us, Lord, but surely I... Meant to say by that, that God is good but not safe, and that fear and awe of him are wisdom's true beginning. More than anything, though, I see in this prayer a prayer for Christian formation, that we might become disciples, that we might grow deeper into him. It's not only a defensive prayer that we would be alert to the wiles of the devil, but a positive and Proactive prayer, praying that God's love and grace might take root deeply in us. 2 Corinthians, the third chapter, has Paul saying, All of us, with unveiled faces seeing the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We've been talking about these last weeks together about worship. And whatever... Else worship is, it is surely in part, in large part, being immersed, baptized into the splendor of God. And Paul tells us that if we see that with unfailed vases, his glory, that we are transformed in some way. According to Psalm 29, worship is to ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name and worship the Lord in his holy splendor. Worship, then, is to be immersed, baptized into the fullness of God's attributes and actions, magnificence and radiance. So I want to take as my theme this morning what it is in the light of seeing God and ascribing majesty to His name, what it is in light of that to be transformed, what it is to live the Christian life, what the look of a disciple looks like. As a result of seeing God aright, the texts say, we shall be changed, not because of anything we do, but because of who He is and what He does. God, on whom we are centered and to whom we submit, promises to transform us by His life and by His own revelation of Himself. So, to turn to that theme, I want to take as my text. Some verses from 1 Peter. If uh, in your pew Bible, or if you have the New International Version, I'm going to ask you to read in unison with me. It is on page 1104 of your pew Bible, if I can read my own handwriting. And we will read there verses 13 to 16, and then again verses 22 and 23. 1 Peter 1 verse 13. And let me ask you, if you can, to stand for the reading together of God's Holy Word. First Peter 1, 13, the New International Version, as I invite you to read together if you have that version. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled, Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. And Verse 22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers. Love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring Word of God. You may be seated. Father, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts... Be acceptable in your sight, O oh, Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. The book of First Peter, and because of that, the Apostle Peter tells us that a life rooted deeply in the God of the Bible is a transformed life. And the first phrase we read in verse 13 is that we will have minds prepared for battle, therefore gird your minds for action. This is a battle phrase, taking up a robe and tucking it into a belt so you are ready to take on your adversary. The Christian faith is a love affair. But it is also warfare. We are involved in a battle, a chief weapon of which, as well as a chief spoil of which, is our minds. When I was at a seminary, I remember the seminary church at that time. Uh, one fall, the pastor, during a stewardship sermon, which, God willing, you are probably going to hear in some of the weeks ahead again, pulled up on the platform with his parents' permission, a young 12 year old boy, he had him seated there throughout all the sermon, and he used him as a vivid reminder that I obviously have never forgotten. That advertisers and interest groups and peers were all targeting him and spending money and influence and applying pressure all in a battle for his allegiances, a battle for his mind. To live is to be joined in a battle of and for our minds. In what I believe is a compelling book, Reaching Out Without Dumbing Down, Marva Dawn speaks to the weakening of the Western Church's confidence in telling and believing her own story, in practicing our words of faith, she writes, the whole Christian community must always be in a process of growth to become more grounded in the faith she seeks to pass on. Unfortunately, many congregations are moving in the opposite direction. What we do and the worship forms we use are critically important because they shape the community's capacity to discriminate and discern excellence. Put it this way. We become the people we are by the stories we tell and that we enter, and that we understand. We are the people we are by the convictions we hold, by the songs we sing. We become Christians, not by releasing some inner spirit, but by encountering the Holy Spirit. In his book, No Place for Truth, David Wells explains what has happened now that the cords of tradition have been so increasingly severed by our contemporary society. He writes, film and television now provide the sorts of values that were once provided by church and family. So it is that in the new civilization that is emerging, children are being lifted away from the older values like anchorless boats on a rising tide. Because modernity has created a world in which unbelief seems normal, It has, at the same time, created a world in which Christian faith is alien. It is the inability to resist this oddness that is now wreaking its havoc on the Western mind. So the educational, the, if I can use a seminary word, the catechetical, the instructional goal of the church, is to create souls that have Christ formed and Christ shaped imaginations postmodernity could be summarized as the belief that we live in a time where there is no overarching stories of truth which itself ironically many people have pointed out is an overarching story about truth it's a great time for the church to tell her story it's a neat story it's a great time for the church if the church is up to it. Because we have a genuine story of community and faith, a story of a humanity that betrayed the God who made us, and a Christ who is by his cross and resurrection and present reign and bestowal of his spirit, recreates us and brings us to a consummation of life. In our classes here for new Christians, we have turned to teaching and training young Christian souls in the great heritage and teaching of the church. We are to have minds renewed, transformed, and changed. Christian discipleship is to have minds prepared for battle. Then the text goes on and says our minds are to be, in the translation I used in preparing these remarks, not in the translation you just read, to be sober." That means to be engaged, clear-headed, and committed. Part of having minds prepared is having them focused, intoxicants, take us away from ourselves rather than giving us our best self. They instill a false sense of security and well-being. In his book, The Dangerous Act of Worship, I love that title, The Dangerous Act of Worship, Mark Laberton, formerly pastor across the bay at First Presbyterian Church, Berkeley, and now president of Fuller Seminary, writes that one of the qualities that unites the church across both liberal and conservative lines is slumber. He writes at a time when many are struck by the polarization between liberal and evangelical churches in America, it is more striking for him to see what the average congregations on both sides hold in common. They are asleep. Some seem asleep to God. Some seem asleep to the world. Some sleep on their right side, others on their left, but either way, they are asleep. The way they sleep, the character of their dreams, the forms of their sleepwalking or their sleep talking can vary. But our conversations can devolve into little more than preference lists for how we like our worship served up each week. It's worship as consumption rather than offering. It's an expression of human taste, not longing to reflect God's glory. And he writes even more pointedly, I recently stood on the grounds of a large church I watched the children in color-coordinated orange t-shirts dance and follow the worship band whose faces were projected larger than life on two huge screens up front. Suddenly, I felt a sadness that these hundreds of children were being put spiritually asleep. Asleep to the God of the still, small voice. To the God who suffered for the sake of the world. To the God who said, Lay down your life and take up your cross and follow me. The leaders were surely trying to communicate the best means they knew to the children. But instead, what seemed evident to me was that this church, one that would be, by most measures, considered awake, was running the risk of investing astonishing energy in breeding and nurturing a yet more excellent sleep. End of quote. There is a subtle but significant difference between the derivation of the words entertainment and recreation and amusement. Amusement means ah, muse, meant no thought. To be summoned to be sober in spirit. Means to have lives which are thoughtful, alert, and engaged, prepared for battle, alert for the moment. Then in verse 14, Peter charges the church to refuse to be conformed to the spirit of the age. Look again with me. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. In short, our hearts are not to be conformed to the world's lies. We are to be on target with proper passions. The church should be willing to die for the world, to lay down her life, but not conform to it. Christians are to be people awake, and that means passionate and desiring and hoping and dreaming, God forgive us. If we ever live up to the appellation the world thinks of us as the frozen chosen. Lust, however, is inappropriate desire, desire twisted and misplaced. Significantly being conformed to former lusts is attributed in this passage to ignorance. Lust is giving one's life falsely, ignorantly, without knowledge, to an illusion, a half-truth, which is to say, a lie, and Satan is known as the father of lies. Lives which are dominated by twisted desires are lives which are informed by illusions rather than truth. First, Timothy, in the fourth chapter, talks about these doctrines of demons propagated by seducing spirits through lying hypocrites. The fact is that the modern world in which we live, the postmodern world, is really a tournament of traditions, of competing values, a continual battle for our thoughts and souls and minds, all trying to make an ultimate claim upon us, and very little of it coming from the Christian claim of truth. What are some of today's worldly fables? That is to say, ideas that are being pushed on us as true. We are told money buys happiness. Pleasure is our primary goal. Whoever dies with the most toys wins, and the primary source of all of our self-identity and self-worth is our work. In various ways and at various times, many of us, maybe most of us in this room, have lived as though we believed those very things. And many of us have mistakenly devoted much of our lives to assumptions like them. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and the way to life then involves the pursuit of truth. In the very first chapter of Romans, Paul analyzes the fundamental problem of human life, as residing in the fact that human spirits have exchanged truth for lies. What does it mean to be a Christian disciple? It is to be a passionate pursuer of the truth, a bearer of the truth, a teller of the truth. Life lives not conformed to the lie, but transformed by the truth of Christ. So your mind's prepared for the battle and alert to the hour and rooted in truth. Then we are to be grounded in grace. Paul concludes the 13th verse with the imperative for your hope is to be completely fixed on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The church is not a social club or a service society. She is not a support group to gently encourage already nice people to be a little bit nicer. The church is a society branded by the grace of Jesus Christ. We are a people constituted by the grace made available in Christ. That's our foundation. That is our cornerstone. Fix your hope not largely, not significantly, but completely on grace. That means grace is not given to people who have come to contribute their merit and their work and their goodness, and to take that bit, whether little or large, of grace that is needed to complete it. It was no accident that Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who know their spiritual poverty. Because grace is given only to people who know they are dead. Grace makes the lost found. And brings the dead to life. In verse fifteen Only lives that have died are free to be shaped by the character of God. Like the holy one who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, as I am holy. Rough trend to be holy means to be separate, to be set apart, to be different. Our rough Chelsea translation, which I shared with you once before, is, in an all due respect, be weird as I am weird. <laughs> to be a Christian today, or perhaps any day, to have one's life grounded in grace and not in merit, to live not out of a secular set of stories, is to be in the world's eyes a bit weird. I was proud of my wife when later in life she was completing her college degree and taking an undergraduate philosophy course. It was taught by one of those most dangerous of people in my estimation, one who had been to seminary and thought he'd put it behind it. And he said to the introductory class of philosophy in a secular school, he said, I want you to be radicals. I want you to question the belief system and the conviction of your parents. I want you to come to your own philosophy and worldview of life. I want you to be revolutionary. Stephanie put her hand up, not cowed by uh, any young whippersnapper, and said, that's great. You know, I was raised in a secular Southern California affluent materialistic household. And uh, when... I became an adult. I found the revolutionary, radical truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I've given my life wholeheartedly and passionately to it and witnessed to it to my parents' stale, old, musty, forsaken set of beliefs. Afterwards, all the young, some of the the youngest people on the council went up and found her. Oh, thank you so much for saying that and being that. It will be a little bit weird in the world be holy as I am holy. Just to to mention, or maybe we'll come back to them again, but verse 22, be bound by love, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Fervently love one another from the heart. Love is the work of the heart. It takes precedence to missions and evangelism and education and Perhaps even worship, or perhaps put a better way, it is to say that missions and evangelism and education and even worship are as tinkling cymbals and clanging gongs. That is, they count for nothing if there is not love. Despite every evidence of an empty tomb and eyewitness accounts and the growth of the early church and appearance as disciples, Scripture says the world has the right to judge. Judge. Whether or not it's all true, whether or not Jesus is Lord of life, whether he died for our sins and rose on the third day and bestowed us with the Spirit, the world has the right to account whether there is any truth to any of that on the basis of the love that she sees in the church. That's the mark of the church. With all of our warts and shortcomings and problems. I read in a church bulletin some years ago now these words, you ever feel like a frog? Frogs feel slow and low and ugly. Yet at one time or another, each one of us has probably found him or herself on a lily pad floating down the great river of life, feeling like an unkissed prince in frog form. And then the church bulletin tied it all up by saying the task of the church is kissing frogs. Or more precisely, it is to be the company of those who have been kissed by the eternal Prince and who live together now, gratefully and forgivingly in the community of the holy kiss, community of love. Not insignificantly, but I don't have time, we are born again by the imperishable word. C.H. Spurgeon says we are to be marinated in the word of God. Where do we find encouragement and promise? Where do words of life come to us? Where are we summoned to a new way of being? It is through the word of promise and the word of life that has come to us. In his uh, wonderful book, Resident Aliens, Stanley Hauer Voss, includes uh, this passage, I shared it with you once before, in the June 22nd. 1991 edition of the Toronto Star, there was an account of a Toronto church who was looking for a new minister. Prior to calling that person, they carefully prepared a mission statement and a manifesto to describe their purpose, and it said, among other things, and now I quote from the Toronto Star via Resident Aliens We want a leader who will dare us to take the risks of the gospel seriously. And the Toronto Star added, that kind of church may indeed be crucified, but it will never be boring. Well, I've tried to take the gospel seriously with you, and I'm sure both you and your next pastor will as well. And indeed, our life together has not been boring on one level. It has been what the letter calls both serious and risky. But on another level, there has been no risk at all. To live the Christian life, to be a Christian disciple, is to live the life which alone is certain and solid and blessed. And more than being serious and sober, it is also filled with the laughter of heaven. You are called to a Christian life together which is never boring because it is challenging, demanding, rewarding, delightful, and full of joy. May God continue to bless all of you in the witness he is calling you to make and to be as you immerse yourself in his splendor and see with unveiled faces his glory and live together lives which are transformed by his grace, and by his love. Living and holy God, you have called us to a great calling and great lives, but you have not left us on our own to do it. You have called us to look at you and to be lifted by you, and we thank you for the privilege of being alternate communities in a society which is wounded and hurts and crumbling and crippled like we all are without your grace. Father, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, which promises us that you have come to us in human form, that you have died for our sins, that you have risen for the third day, that you have broken through every barrier and boundary that would kill us and which would keep us from you. And now we are invited to live lives empowered and filled and flooded with the Holy Spirit that being transformed we might be part of your mission purposes of transforming the world you came to love and died to save. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.